Hello there and welcome to the Ethnic Excellence Podcast. Today we have Zahra and James. Zahra is a spiritual coach, writer, award-winning entrepreneur, wife and a mother of four. James is an award-winning scientist and researcher, four-time entrepreneur and a father of four. In today's episode we'll be talking about their experience of being raised in America, what they studied in the education system, what they went on to do professionally after attaining their qualifications and how they became Islamic life coaches as well as discussing what they offer as Islamic life coaches and the benefits it can have to our lives. Assalamu alaikum, my name is Ahral Jabri. Um, my parents are originally from Kenya and I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and then we moved to California when I was about five years old. So I pretty much feel like I'm a Cali, Cali girl. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. I'm, I'm James. Uh, I was actually, uh, I'm half Algerian, half Irish American. I was born in New York, um, but then grew up in, in North Africa and Algeria. Uh, then I came back to New York and did my studies there. Um, but uh-huh. now I'm in Los Angeles with my wife. Zahra. So how did you guys meet if one was in California, one was in New York? Well, we met through a mutual friend, my roommate um, in, uh, in graduate school uh, was her friend, I guess, in undergrad at UCLA. And he introduced us. Okay. So at that time I was living in Minnesota and she was actually living in New York. Yes. <laughs> uh, so very convoluted story. Okay, so between you guys, all over the place, you've gone from one end to the other to, to a different continent. Was that yeah. was that was that dynamic shift? I mean, assuming because since you were born in America, then you went to Algeria, then you came back. I'm assuming the shift when you came back was it okay making that change because you were already used to it as a young kid. Um, well, I don't I don't recall much from my childhood in the U.S. Um, I mean, you know, I recalled, you know, a lot of the materialistic things, the cereals and the cookies and the toys, which are back in the 80s in Algeria and during Civil War, those weren't necessarily uh, abundant, I'll say. Um, But I think um, it was definitely an interesting uh, reintegration, Um, especially I had become Muslim while I lived in Algeria and and I'm a pretty, uh, I guess, independent person. I'm an only child. Um, so it was very interesting when I look back, like just me trying to figure out these things on my own. Um, even though there was help, whatever, I was just so accustomed to doing things on my own a lot of times. Uh, it was a lot of trial and error. And I guess that, who knew? But in hindsight, that's what prepared me to be a success coach now is, mm-hmm. is just me going through the trials and turbulations and, and my desires so others don't have to go through the same trial and error as I did. Okay, so for both of you, would you say, did you have any issues integrating your own culture from your own ethnicity into the culture that you were raised in? Mm. Or was it easy? Um, I think for me, as um, my parents are African immigrants, um, growing up, I'm growing up in the 80s, you know, they emigrated in the 70s. I think they came when there was in the United States, a lot of immigration happening. So there were different pockets forming of, you know, foreigners. Um, And it was kind of that preserving of their own culture while adopting American culture in, in whatever ways they felt were good or acceptable or appropriate. 
Um, and then, you know, whatever ways they didn't want, like, don't know, you can't do that. We don't do that. You know, we're Muslim or we're African or whatever it was. Um, and so I, for me, because there were other children who were also immigrants from, you know, Egypt and Syria and um, all these other different places that I grew up with, it, it, uh, it felt normal to be like, okay, we are, you know, not white Americans. Um, and we do we practice and we practice life. We live life slightly differently. And, uh, it felt, um, it felt fine. And I think my, my mother is white American and, and, and not Muslim. And therefore I think for me, it was more, not so much about practicing my own culture. It wasn't anything really cultural per se, but I would say it was about experimenting about seeing what works for me. Um, and, you know, balancing that with, my spiritual growth and the things that I felt were important to me and, and that I valued. So it was more so about experimenting, seeing what works. I tried things. I tried hanging out with only white people and I, I tried different things, tried hanging out only in the mosque, uh, at the university, et cetera. So I, and then I found my, what, what works for me. Um, and I think that was the, the biggest blessing in my case. Okay. Um, Cause as you said, you were trying to, you know, you only hang around with white people, then you hang around with Arabs, I'm assuming in the mosque, were you trying to, because you were from, uh, uh, from, you know, your mom being a white American, your dad being a Northern African Arab, were you trying to fit, find your people? I think so. I think I was trying to find the, the, the right balance of being grounded, um, spiritually, but also with that ambition. Um, to be honest, you know, at the mosque, a lot of people's ambitions did not match my own. Like, Mm. you know, we spoke about basketball. Like I came to America initially because I wanted to play in the NBA, which is in the United States. If you walked in the street and you told somebody wants to play in the NBA, they'll generally laugh at you because it is so exclusive of a dream, but that's the dream that I had. And so that was one of the things. So I was trying to find people who were deeply engrossed in their spiritual, uh, development as much as they were deeply engrossed in, um, for lack of a better term, worldly achievement. Um, okay. and, and so that, that was the balance that I had to find. And it took me, uh, and, and with that comes, you know, certain personality traits, comes certain uh, lifestyles, certain, uh, you know, certain sort of qualities of life. Some of them I liked and some of them I didn't. And that's why I had to create what I felt was necessary for myself. Yeah. That, yeah. That's really interesting because I've, read and heard a few stories about how people from um, individuals from or children from interracial families where some were not i mean not in our case today's day and age um but like 30 40 years ago where you know you, it's almost like you would have to pick a side but you didn't have to it really but like because how stuff was 30 40 years ago um any kind kind of creates confusion as a child when you're trying to grow up and raise that okay do I identify with this or that? And then, but then you can you can identify with both. But that, but that's thank, thank you. For that. that was really, really interesting. Um, so I before mean, one we thing go, that I would yeah. one thing that I will say about that it, it it is it is a choice that sometimes people are put into. In my case, growing up in Algeria, coming from America, and when we moved, we moved in the late eighties, early nineties when the Gulf War was happening. So people were like, "Oh, you're American. You're with you're with Bush. You're you're mm-hmm. against Saddam, etc." Um, and the interesting thing that happened to me was every language that I speak, um, even though I speak multiple languages, I speak all of them with, with an accent that makes you like, oh, you're not from here. Even my Arabic people will not think I'm Arab. 
my Algerian people won't think I'm Algerian. My French people won't think I'm French. My English people won't think necessarily I'm, I'm American, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, um, it wasn't so, so there was always like if I try to force myself within a community, like generally speaking, people will focus on the differences that I had and they'll say, OK, you don't belong to this community or that community. Mm. And for me, it was really about creating, again, the resilience as much as we are social beings and, you know, I crave to be an accepted. I also had to accept myself first. Um, and that was the work that I had to do the majority of my life is that accepting mm -hmm. that I am who I am and I'm not going to forsake my Islamic nature to, to hang out with my white family. I have a large white family here in upstate New York or vice versa, or, you know, to go to go to a Muslim gathering and bash my my white family or whatever it may be. So it was really about choosing um, who I wanted to be and not be defined by these sort of easy to define labels like yeah. culture and, and race and, and nationality. Yeah. No, it's great that you found, you know, you navigated through all of that and found the perfect balance of the sphere. That's great. Um, yeah. So, so before we get into the, how you became Islamic life coaches, what were you two doing before that? A university? What work? Um, I, uh, in undergrad studied, um, mass communication. I was always fascinated by, um, sociology and, and those types of things. Um, and kind of related to even what James was saying, like for me being an African, uh, Muslim in white suburbia, um, the I'm just visibly other, uh, I didn't wear hijab when I was young, but I was obviously black. So I was, I would always be trying to find commonalities and similarities that I shared with my peers so that I could be, um, so that they could see that I related to them and that I could be in the group or that I did fit in, not necessarily because I wanted them to accept me, but because I was like, there's not that much difference. Like, yeah, we could talk about, you know, that, you know, what you eat or you're not allowed to have sleepovers or this and that, but like, on the whole, there's so much more that we share that we're, that we have in common. And, you know, as I, um, went into college, that same type of interest and in understanding how people operate, how people think, what people think about why, like we feel so alone, even though we are basically all individually going through the same type of experience. You know, the pandemic is a good example, like people feeling isolated and cut off and the pain and the uncertainty and the worry um, and the fear going on in the pandemic. But universally, collectively, we're all going through that together so we could come together and support one another. But in many cases, we don't. If someone asks you how you're doing, I'm fine, I'm doing good. I was able to do this and blah, 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 but and not share that like, I don't know what it, what I'm doing. I'm terrified. Everything's falling apart. I don't understand. But instead we pretend because we think everyone else does have it figured out. Um, so that was my undergraduate. And then I didn't really know what to do with that. Um, I it's nice also, that, that uh -huh. I was just gonna say, it's nice that that, that, that ex experience kind of shaped, okay, I want to, since I've gone through that, I want to go actually study into this and find more. So it was nice that you kind of by finding yourself you kind of found a passion through what you wanted to study yeah I mean mass communications is such a fascinating topic right like how do you speak to the masses what moves the masses what are the 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 messages that galvanize people that motivate people um all of it is so interesting and fascinating um 
but as I was saying, I didn't really know what to do with it. And my parents were like, you should get an advanced degree. So then I went to law school. Um, and in my last semester of law school is when I met James. Um, and right after I graduated is, uh, when we got married and then I started, um, working as, um, a civil rights attorney. And then I, um, also had an Islamic wills and estate planning practice. And so that was my initial start. And in the civil rights space, it's kind of also the, a similar, um, draw in that individuals are experiencing something that is discriminatory, right? That they are being treated differently at work or at school or at a restaurant or in a government setting. And they're coming now to like, you know, complain and get their grievances met. Like this wasn't right. This wasn't fair. And to, um, I was a, we worked in an advocacy role. So we were trying to create understanding between both parties, right? I was dealing with a lot of um, uh, refugees and new immigrants. So they hadn't yet really been fully integrated into American culture. And so helping them to understand like, oh, you know, when your boss said that, they didn't mean it, you know, in this kind of harsh, rude way. They were actually curious and you could have taken the conversation this way. And then same thing, going to the, on the boss's side, when your employee made that request or said that statement, they didn't mean it in a disrespectful or whatever. They were trying to understand and under, you know, navigate the new workplace. So bridging the, the helping employees and employers see their commonalities, see how they, they want the same thing to do good work that, you know, is makes a difference and it has meaning for whatever it is that the employment situation is um, and help them to see that, that they're all on the same page. And if you guys can, learn how to communicate with each other and learn what it is that you two mean, you can have a smooth work environment or school environment or whatever it was. Um, and so that was another great place for me to really uh, see kind of, again, on a larger scale and um, really understand like a wider breadth of experience of um, the Muslim community, of the immigrant community, and then have even more a deeper understanding of like from the American white you know, Anglo side, like what their perspective is and where their hangups and, and, um, their, uh, misunderstandings are. Yeah. I can see now from how you've gone through that step by step. I can see, get, get an idea of how you got into Islamic, Islamic life coaching from your experiences and the problems you've been in. So to already picture, I can visualize, okay, I can see how these are linked, how the dots are connecting to where you are now. Well, what about for you, James? Uh, I, uh, I studied uh, computer science as an undergraduate. Uh, you know, software was all the rage post sort of the dot-com bubble. Um, and uh, coming out of university, I had a chance to join sort of the big, you know, the big five kind of software companies. But my um, heart at the time, my grandmother, who my, my maternal grandmother, who's, who's American, whom I hadn't seen pretty much since I was six years old, uh, passed away from Alzheimer's. I, I'm, I'm, I reconnected with her like towards like the last six months or so of her life. But uh, of course she did not remember me at that time. She had pretty advanced Alzheimer's. And so I was really keen on trying to apply sort of computer science to, uh, to Alzheimer's disease. And there was this emerging field called computational neuroscience that I was very interested in. So instead of, you know, selling ads on the internet at Google or, or whatever, Facebook or these other ones, I decided to pursue graduate school and try to do this 
computational neuroscience. Um, but uh, my advice for those that are listening is, you know, people, uh, and I've, you know, now that I've progressed in my career, I've been parts of conversation where people try to design degrees and people create degree names that sound cool and catchy just to, you know, to rope you in to pay tuition. It's not really about the outcome that they're seeking. So if you hear a futuristic uh, degree from a university, chances are it is very likely BS and they don't have anything figured out. But anyway, so I went in and indeed didn't have anything figured out really in this program. Um, but it was one of those things, I guess, where you're kind of afraid of, you know, what people may think. I was like, well, I'm, I made it out here. I have a free tuition. Um, let me try to do the best of it. And then I went into this field that people call AI, artificial intelligence. Back then, didn't, nobody called it AI because it was what we call the AI winter. AI was completely dead. And most people, when they said AI, they meant video games. That's the only thing really like where AI was somewhat applicable. Um, but it was just uh, a coincidence that it, it so happened that when I started doing AI, even though it wasn't that cool at that time, but I was genuinely interested, things started picking up. And now, as you can see, it's sort of a full-blown thing. Um, so I, I did my uh, PhD in artificial intelligence, and um, I applied it mostly towards the end of my career. I, I applied it to many disciplines because I was always... There's a lot of theoretical people out there who do sort of computer science for computer science sake. Let me just make this algorithm run like one second faster than the previous one. That's that's great. We have plenty of those. What I really want to do is how, again, how do we use AI to make the world a better place? So I worked in cognitive psychology and then I moved on to um, global climate change. And I worked on that for about four or five years, really trying to understand how do we monitor global change on a global scale? Right, because we know things are happening here, there, like anecdotally, but can I do it systematically, automatically across the globe? Can I know deforestation on a global scale? Can I understand hurricanes, tsunamis, all these things? And are they changing indeed due to global climate change? Um, and then, you know, after that, I finished my degree. I had started a couple of companies in the interim. Um, and I, I wanted to give uh, being a professor a try. Uh, so I did that for a while and it just was not uh, what I hoped. Uh, it was just not as rewarding as people made it seem. Um, and, you know, I was very much on that rat race kind of thing, just always looking for the next thing. Nothing satisfied me very long. Um, and uh, so that's that was like sort of my first job out of out of university was to become a university professor myself. That's interesting. Okay. I didn't, yeah. Cause I, I, cause I've had, I've had a look at your social media platform. So I didn't realize that you wanted to be professor and I had, I hadn't, I knew that uh, Zara was in law because Howard told me <laughs> um <laughs> so I, I did have a rough idea of your well just like a simple rough idea of your backgrounds but I just wanted to know more because I felt like you might give an idea how you got into Islamic life coaching and like Zara was trying to work within a community scale not within a corporate scale the I guess the clash of different cultures and the dynamic of communication between different people from different cultures. And then you're on a global scale looking um, how changes can happen on a global scale. So I'm assuming because both of you are trying to focus on, you're focusing on things, but basically the emphasis is change. Um, so I guess that is, you kind of had a seed planted in a way for because then you shift into Islamic life coaching where now you're trying to change people's lives, but I'm assuming it's individually and for couples from the content I've seen of yours, but was there something, if you do want to share, you don't have to answer this question, but was there an, a, a personal reason as well 
um, outside of the work that you did for going into Islamic life coaching? I mean, I think for me on an individual level, personally, was more so about how to be um, an impactful Muslim professional. Like that's, that's where really I started putting into practice a lot of my beliefs in the workplace. And so I would openly pray. Like I had an open glass window. I'll just start praying there in the, in the middle of the cubicles, in the middle of the hallway. I didn't care. Um, I took time off. I delayed my PhD by, you know, by, by a few months because I decided to take leave and go to Hajj. And that's how actually, that's when we got, I got introduced to Zahra. Um, and so really for me was about how do I step into my power as a Muslim to achieve extraordinary things in the workplace? And, and, and sort of, it was that like, just being openly Muslim, being unapologetically Muslim and using the tools that you learn commonly in, in, in Islamic school, uh, you know, you read about them, you hear about them on YouTube, but they, most Muslims don't practice them. It's common, it's common sense, but not common practice, right? Say the truth, speak your truth, don't do things, speak the truth even if it's against yourself, all these things that we know, but we don't practice them. And so for me, my job, and, and I was fairly successful. Like when I was a young, my PhD won best PhD award, for example, out of all PhD theses. And, um, you know, I won multiple grants before even I became a professor, which is usually very difficult, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, um, you know, like society would like to call you a rising star, if you will. Um, but for me, it was really about, well, how do I cement my success in my spirituality? And how do I use Islam as a tool to succeed as opposed to succeeding despite being a Muslim. Most Muslims that I knew succeeded despite being Muslim. They'll change their name to the Mo or, you know, some, some other sort of nickname to like pass as non-Muslim. Um, they would basically trade away their Islam and, you know, and they'll be, yes, they will, they will achieve that success, but I could tell that they weren't happy. And that's not, at least that's not what I wanted for myself. And so that was the turning point for me was how do I practice my faith in a powerful way that elevates me from the crowd, from being a cookie cutter professional. Um, and then I guess for us, as for us catering to couples, as we were brainstorming what we we're going to do next, that and I, I had, you know, I could share maybe another time the story about me leaving my job, et cetera. But um, when we were deciding what to do next after some spiritual growth and, and, and a lot of uh, spiritual work that we did on ourselves, um, what was the thing that we could share with the world? Yes, we could share your law expertise. We could share AI. We could share these things. But what it came down to is the main thing that we could share was our love for each other. And because as a man, I felt that a lot of Muslim guys that I met, like didn't love their wives. The uncle at the mosque, they always like talk badly about their wives. Or, like, oh, women are so stupid and all these like misogynistic things, which made no sense. Like, if you believe that marriage is happy religion, why are you throwing away half your religion? And, and no wonder why are, as Muslims, we are not as high performing as we could be because we, we throw away half of our, our faith. And basically that's what we wanted to do is can we show people that you can have an amazing life? You could be loving, you could be respectful to each other and you can be successful um, in whatever you do. Uh, that's at least for, for me was like, can we show our love? Can we show that it's okay to love each other and not be afraid of the evil eye and all these other sort of, um, I wouldn't call them nonsensical things, but I think they're over, they're blown out of proportion. Um, and, and can we be an example of something different? That's so beautifully said. <laughs> um, 
from my perspective, like how, uh, how the shift came, um, for me, coaching was something that always, or I don't know, not always, but like, I guess whenever I learned about it, I was like, Oh my God, that's really cool. Like I could, um, I could see myself doing that. And it, I just didn't, uh, feel like I had, um, the authority or something to do that. There was this, just this perception in my mind, like, oh, well, you know, I don't have all of my life figured out to go and tell someone else how to figure out their life. Um, but along with James, like, as we were both, you know, we had, we had started several companies, we were working on them. We got into these different entrepreneurial circles. And for me, that's when I really saw like, okay, um, you know, I'm in this group or I'm witnessing these people and they have this business idea and I'm watching them take that idea, you know, begin to execute on it, get some traction and, and make all of this progress. Um, you know, some people are, are, and some people aren't, <clears throat> but I'm primarily fixated on the ones who are making progress. And as I am trying to grow my own business, um, and I'm, and I'm really in close contact appreciating that, hmm, this person who I perceive to be more successful than me or is having these different achievements than me, they're not smarter than me. They're not working harder than me. They're not, you know, more connected than me. But, but why are they making progress? And I'm not. And that kind of um, really frustration with like, I want to rise to uh, that level and I have something that I'm providing and I want to give and want to contribute to the world and make it, you know, larger than just like, oh, my friends and family know about it to build it into something. And I'm feeling so stuck, so blocked to do it. And that's kind of what set me on my own personal journey of understanding what, what is it? If they're not smarter than me, not working harder than me and not more, you know, more resourced or more well-connected, well, what is it then? That's what the things that they say are, you know, the differentiators and, but that's not what I'm witnessing. So what is it? And what I came to understand and really appreciate was that it was your mindset, your faith, your, um, your belief, how you view yourself, all of these internal things. And then as I was appreciating what my internal state was and the position that I held it in, um, what was shining loud and clear was that that was all colored by my upbringing and by being Muslim and my faith and Islam, and that my interpretation of Islam, that I had interpreted it in a way that, um, made me have limiting beliefs and not believe that Allah was supporting me and believe that I had to work harder than anyone else, that it's about hard work. It's not about, you know, uh, trust and all of these things. And so coming to that, um, clear place for myself on that spiritual journey, and then coming out on the other side and being like, oh my gosh, like now look how things are opening up for me and what I can achieve and where I'm going and how more at peace I feel like truly just feeling better about my own life was like such a huge, um, difference in just like all the same, you know, things, situation crap is happening. And yet, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Like Allah's on my side. Things are all good. It's all going to be great. I'm, I'm totally okay. Um, really knowing that like, 
I have to share this. Like this has to be shared and this is so powerful. And this is the reason why for so many Muslims, they are either um, just kind of pretend, pretending to be fine and okay, everything fine, alhamdulillah, that's good, it's great. Yeah, I made this, I'm getting this new job, I've got the house. But deep down, just feeling like, is that it? This is all, like I'm working nonstop from morning to night and it's just to have this house, have this job and and then what? And then still constantly fearful that probably maybe I'm gonna go to hell. Um, or tr trying and striving for something greater to build a great company or to be, you know, an Olympian or to win a Nobel prize and cure some disease, striving for that. And again, feeling that block and supporting those people to understand that it is not about more work on the worldly plane. It is literally about more work spiritually on the spiritual plane because we are spiritual beings and that that piece of Islam over the years and in the West has been, we've diluted Islam down to its rules and its um, sound bites because those are easy to transmit. And who were, you know, in my case, who are my Islamic teachers at the Sunday schools, just the aunties and uncles, right? So it's just easy for them to transmit these sound bites. Like they, they didn't have the depth of spiritual experience and understanding, so they couldn't transmit that to me. But mm -hmm. that is where, what we're at now is, and worldwide we're experiencing that, that people are turning to yoga and meditation and all of these spiritual practices because people are understanding that like, we've done all the stuff on the worldly level and we're still, you know, depressed, obese, unhappy, you know, mean, bullying, all of these things. So, and we have, we have the cars and the house and the fridge and the this and that, you know, so what is it? And when we really came to appreciate it, you know, that I started sharing just as a newsletter, um, then it became a blog. And then I started my Instagram account. And then I started, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching and then developed a program. And so it just grew step by step of like, how can I just get this information out? And as more people were interested and as more lives were touched, like, okay, what's a more meaningful way, a more meaningful way. And so now we have this amazing six week coaching program that really guides people through going to the depth of, of um, what it is that they think and believe about themselves, about Allah, about others, about the world, so that they can realize that whatever it is that they have within them, that they, that is causing that longing and that is causing that dissatisfaction is for a purpose. And that purpose is for them to let it out to, for them to do this work. So that seed that Allah has planted in each of us can actually emerge as a great Oak tree, instead of us constantly stamping it down and stamping it out. MashaAllah, that was really both of your answers were quite really, really insightful and quite beautiful. Um, no, I completely agree. Um, where especially when you said, you know, about, you know, we've been told the do's and don'ts, the halal and the haram. And, but then we don't really actually have, we don't really put much energy into the relationship and the connectivity, the connectivity aspect between all these different dynamics, you know, your relationship with you and your actions, you, and how you're processing the information of your religion, of your own spirit, spirituality, and most importantly, your relationship with Allah. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I, I, me, myself, victim of some of the 
like what exactly what you've said some of the stuff that you said you've gone through i've only gone through that actually recently um just thinking about what, uh, about that so this uh, the way you've turned it off is great because i can now lead into the question where so now i'm assuming I, you both you are both full-time coaches or or as, as the as the um as you said you went step by step and you grew it um i'm assuming you were doing your law and civil rights work on the side and then when it became okay we've actually got a really big product here this could work let's fully fully commit so i mean so i'm a full-time coach yeah. um and james i guess maybe is transitioning <laughs> i've just started transitioning to full-time now okay so now we can go into the the services that you offer um so I know you got your devotionals, your coaches and your programs. So do you want to go into detail step by step? Um, first of all, go with the program first, because that's the core one, um, the six week core program. So the one I'm aware of is relationships coaching program. Is this the one? Yeah, our core coaching program um, is called Limitless Love. And it's really about unlocking the limitless potential in your life and that our life was made for love. Allah is a loving being, a loving God, a loving deity. And he describes himself most often in terms that relate to love, you know, Rahman or Rahim, these terms that, that relate to love. And so all of our life is about love, expressing love in more and more ways, right? Receiving wealth and abundance is an expression of love. You know, getting married, having a family is an expression of love. Contributing something to your community, building, you know, a, a creative project is an expression of love. So our program is called Limitless Love. And it really focuses, uh, it tends to bring in two groups of people, those looking for a loving romantic relationship, a marriage or repairing their current marriage that maybe things have fallen apart. Um, and those looking to expand their career in some way, either that they want to transition jobs, get pr promoted, start their own company, just feeling that in their, in their contributions, in their career, that they, um, that there's more for them there and they're unable to kind of breakthrough and figure out what that is. So those are, so that's the top level of what Limitless Love is and who, who are the two main groups that tend to resonate with it. And what we, the reason why the program is so transformational and powerful is because um, we really, again, go deep. And what we do is we, we work on three types of relationships. First and foremost, we start with the relationship with yourself. That's our first pillar is a lot of the things that you desire in your life that you're not seeing are primarily because of a fractured relationship with oneself. That's first and foremost. Um, so people unable to find love, being ghosted all the time, people always in the same argument with their wife or husband of many, many years, people never being acknowledged at work and celebrated despite them creating great value to these companies. Most of the time it starts with the self. Then, so we spend the first two weeks just on repairing that relationship, resetting it, giving you, most people say that within the first 10 minutes of the program, like their lives are already transformed and shifted because we just reset their relationship that people fundamentally misunderstand. So that's, that's the first two weeks. Um, the second two weeks, the second pillar is around the relationship with Allah. As Zahra mentioned, and in her own case, most people have an 
incorrect view and typically a negative view of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as a result, you cannot soar that high with that with that weight on your back. So, so we work on resetting that relationship, refostering it and showing folks how do you connect truly with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala beyond the superficial, right? And then the final, the final pillar is around relationship with others, a relationship with the world. So we call this method the SAW method, S-A-W, self-Allah world. And, and here what we uh, focus on is really that everything that you experience in the world and how you work with others in the world really fundamentally comes down to your view of yourself and your view of Allah. If you take care of those two, everything else falls into place. And what's amazing about our program is just the rapid transformation. That's why we do it six weeks and it's focused and sort of we don't deviate from other topics that we could talk about is because we're so obsessed with results. The main difference in our program is that it's not a knowledge accumulation program. It's not let's sit and binge watch a show for hours on end and you know I'll I'll new, I'll learn a new hadith or I'll learn a new ayah but it's really about what can I practice from the knowledge that I have to make my life look like the knowledge I hold inside. Many Muslims know a lot of stuff. We know all the hadiths, all the ayahs, but our lives, the outer world does not reflect that knowledge. And so how can we break that cycle of just knowledge accumulation and focusing on doing the necessary work fueled with your Islamic knowledge so you could see different results? Okay, so that was great. That was a really good discussion. I'm tempted now. <laughs> um, so... So that's is this program taught individually or in terms of I'm thinking of it like a, is, it, is it a class? I'm assuming it's as a class. So it's a group coaching program. So we do it in cohorts where you all start together and there is recorded video content um, that teach the core lessons. And then there are live coaching calls um, where we will go over how you've applied those lessons in your life, what hurdles came up, what successes you've had, what shifts you've experienced and answer and address any questions to um, personalize the program for you. So that, again, it's not just knowledge accumulation and generic knowledge. It's that, so that, <clears throat> hey, for you, in your case, with your boss, you should say this thing, like specifically, right? And you, as you're, you know, it, trying to interact with people to um, get married on these dating apps, you keep doing this, have you noticed, or this is what we're seeing come up. And so in that way, you are, you know, my Instagram handle is practical Muslim, but you're making it practical. You are making the lessons of Islam, the teachings of our spirit, spiritual teachings, applicable into your life so that it gives you the step-by-step -step guide on this is what you do. This is what you say. This is how you change your thought. This is how you can look at this differently. This is what you can ask for. This is what you need to work on forgiving. And because of that specificity, that is when you are going to uh, experience your life transform. And then in this group, 
coaching setting. So you have your recorded content, you have your live coaching calls. You also get to see other people grappling with what's coming up for them. And again, how do we learn? We learn by specific example, right? We learn from stories, right? If you do, uh, you're trying to understand something in math, they're gonna make you like do this math word problem. That's how it will click in your mind and what's happening. So as you try to understand it for your own life and are applying it in your own life, hearing from your cohort, other people and their experience helps it again, click into you. And each cohort like SubhanAllah, you just know that Allah has brought that group together because everyone in the group needed to hear what everyone else in the group said. And they'll be like, oh my God, oh my God. And it's just this beautiful symphony of understanding, A, I'm not alone in these struggles, that other people are having these struggles. Then B, to see that how is someone else approaching it? They're facing my same challenge of like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't say no to my mom. And she keeps telling me this thing. And oh my God, I can't say no to my mom. Okay, we're going to be working on this together. And then you witness another person see overcome that challenge, which gives you motivation that, okay, I can overcome it too. They are just like me. They were struggling just like me. And they were able to set that boundary with their mother. I can do the same thing. Um, and so the program also has several other resources and tools. You have Telegram, uh, voice note um, access to James and I. We have um, meditations. We have guided Islamic meditations, which are so powerful because meditation is such a, a beautiful practice that has deep roots in Islam that has been lost over time. And so we support you to understand those Islamic roots of meditation, realize how it fits in to Islam, how it's so important, why it's so powerful, and then apply it in a way so that it actually is powerful in your life. Um, and then there's our devotionals, empowering questions, affirmations, and these are all other tools that are really uh, useful and supportive for people. And we, again, tailor and let people know, you focus on this, you focus on that. Everything is available to you, but knowing where to focus is really the beauty of coaching because you can go to YouTube and Google and you will have a plethora of all sorts of things. But if you do not know what is best for my situation and my circumstance, you're going to be either lost in all the information or you're going to choose the wrong thing and then think things don't work. But it's like, well, for your case, you actually should have done this. And as a coach, we can hear your story, know where you're at and guide you to specifically what's going to support you. And I mean, I think the common theme is, again, our obsession over transformation and value, right? We provide so many tools for transformation um, to support your unique case. But I, I want to just underscore again the value of community. And the example that I'll use, actually, maybe that's how you met Zara, but we had a live event in the UK uh, a few months ago. And... Um, Basically, these attendees came. They don't know each other from Adam or Eve, like never met. Um, they all came to, to East London for our event. And it was only a couple of hours. It was, it was a, a, a short three-hour workshop. Um, and we went deep. People cried. People laughed. All that stuff where they worked through, even their life, we, we helped each person work through their unique circumstance and, the, and their unique set of challenges. But then Zahra and I had to leave. Uh, the event ended. We still had food in the room in the hotel. Uh, we had to leave. We're shallow. We had to. We wanted to go and see a play in London, so we were going to the West End. 
Um, but we told the people just stay and all of them stayed and bonded and ate food and laughed and kept going and built that community, even just meeting for three weeks. People who do the program three for three hours, excuse me, people who do our program for six weeks. Okay. You build, you go through the battles, you go through the teardowns, you go through the transformations together. You're constantly sharing what's going on and makes sense that you bond. But what was incredible and amazing of the power of community is that these folks only knew each other for three hours and stayed for a lot longer um, together bonding because usually Muslims are like, oh, I'm a private person. I don't want to air my dirty laundry. I don't want to expose myself. All these sort of um, really negative habits that we've developed in the Muslim community that has basically what it has allowed us to do is what the Prophet already taught us, has allowed the shaitan to fragment us and keep us. And the, the, the surest way to to lose to an addiction is to keep it a secret, right? That's what people will tell you when you try to recover. And that's what the shaitan did. He, uh, he just fragmented everybody's like, oh, don't air your dirty laundry. It's not the sunnah, blah, blah, blah. And that has really weakened us. But now what we see with these groups is that they start apprehensive about doing the group coaching. And then they, they rate it as probably one of the most transformational tools of the program, alhamdulillah. Sounds, oh, did you still have more to say? Sorry. Oh, no. Was this was this still? Oh, I thought Sahara was gonna say something. Sorry, I didn't want to. I didn't want to cut anyone off. Um, also, I want to apologize because I know James pronounced it Sahara. Um, I was just saying it Zara just because I know. I guess when you're living in the Western countries, you, you pronounce these Middle Eastern African names like them, then you forget. I've got you've got the mother tongue to actually say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, like for me, my name Elias, but then some people say Elias, and I'm like. I don't blame him. <laughs> so, but then if, if I know that they're bilingual and I know they can, you know, get the pronunciation, I expect them to say it right. So I want to apologize that I wasn't saying it that way. I should have. <laughs> You're forgiven. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, especially with the la- towards the end, James, you were saying how um there's kind of like, you know, we've kind of like in a way, you know. D- like you said with the shaitan, he says, no, don't say this, don't say that. We've kind of formed our, our own taboos on what to say, even though you actually are allowed to say. Like, for an example, the one that pops up to my head, which um, hopefully I'm going to talk with this charity, maybe to volunteer with them. This is a charity called Inspirited Mind. So the mental health stigma in Islam, um, where they kind of just, from my experience, where they kind of, in a way, like spiritual bypass your mental health, um where instead of you know like for people don't know you know just you know pray to god and that you know pray to god and you know everything will be all right but like god also yeah, yeah, build your relationship with allah but allah also wants you to be communicate with others and get that help because some people in the world that's what they spent their life doing you know I mean, that's their gift that allah has given them you know they can help you with mental health with your mental health and um i've said just i mean i'm, I'm assuming it's similar all over the world but um, with that mental health stigma where they kind of just like, no, don't talk about it. Keep it to yourself. Keep it bottled in. Do your prayers. And for some, that that might, that actually might work. Um, but then for others, they might like need like an Islamic life coach, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, Muslim practicing psychologists or psychiatrists to help them because that Allah gave them that gift and they can help you. You know, they're, you know, Allah, you know just like a, they're a tool of Allah in a way. Um, so I completely agree with um, with what you were saying on that aspect. And that the course seems really, I mean, yeah, to, the way you've described it, really immersive, and you're kind of covering. I mean, yeah, the, the core. I mean, if they were to pick three core foundations, let's say you nailed them. Um, 
um, especially because since I've studied neuroscience and I've specialized in cognitive neuroscience, so I, you've, you're also covering through the spirituality of just improving um, one's connection. You're kind of covering some psychological aspects as well, which tie in perfectly with it. Um, so that's great. Um, so uh, in regards to that programming course, because so, you also do one-to-one coaching, um, I'm assuming you apply these same principles or these same core foundations into that. But well, or is it different? Um, yeah, so I, I think there are two differences. The first difference is that you cannot do one-on-one coaching unless, unless you take the program. No. Just because there's that, that program covers so much in six weeks that it's more economical for you and more sanity for me, for you to do this program instead of me repeating myself over because there's going to be so many things that you, you, we have to undo. We have to empty, empty the cup before we fill it up, right? And so that's what the six-week program is really about. And then we have our one-on-one coaching for people that graduate from our program. And, and that one, um, I think Zahra does it. We do it differently the way I do it because I'm a former athlete. I do it more on that, more as an athletic coach point of view, where I really focus on what are the goals that we're trying to achieve and understanding these goals. Are they wholesome goals? Are they goals that came from your true spirit or just from society? Right. I want to be a doctor. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're brown or Asian, like that's just, that is not a goal that's just expected of you nowadays. So like, what is really from you, from your soul? Um, and then we work a uh, month, the, the one-on-one coaching is one year. So month in and month out over trying to achieve and exceed these goals, but in a, what I call wholesome success way, meaning that you actually achieve, and usually the, the goals that people set actually tend to be too low for them. Um, so not only you exceed your goal, but you deepen your faith. That's the key. Um, because Muslims have this, um, this fallacy that somehow it's a zero sum game that either I increase my faith and therefore I need to let go of the worldly goals or I increase my worldly goals and I have to let go of faith. I become materialistic. I become too obsessed with goals. And that's, that is not correct. It will take me. In fact, I have, I'm doing a monthly series now on wholesome success starting uh, on Tuesday next week. So if people want to tune into that, um, they can, where I, where I work through this very complex topic, but there's this, this policy, uh, you know, I'll meet a lot of Muslims and they'll say, oh, brother, I just, I just want to be worth the beard, on a, the, the hair in Omar's beard or the hair in the prophet's beard. Like, that's all I want, brother. I don't care about anything else. I just want to be like a droplet of sweat on Ali's head. Like, okay, that's, that's like a given. Like all of us want to meet Allah with him, please with us. That's like, like that's like saying I want to breathe like all of us want to breathe even if we're not conscious of breathing and so what we do in my one-on-one coaching is really go deeper into elevating the two elevating our goals and elevating and the only way to achieve elevated goals is to elevate your spirituality and your faith in Allah yeah I mean what I would say for um for coaching in general and um one-on-one coaching in particular is that you can think of it as athletic coaching or, you know, a fitness training or a nutrition training that you're trying to reach something and someone is working with you specifically to devise a plan for you to reach it. And um, that your coach is holding you to not only the standard that you want, but to a higher standard, right? Just like a loving parent, right? holds their children to a higher standard, like, okay, you know, maybe you're struggling in math now, but like, I can see that like, you'll be able to overcome this and you could be, you know, you're a mathematical genius, like that you hold people higher because essentially the level that we view ourselves 
and the level that other people view us, that is where we will rise to, right? So if at most everyone around you is like, oh, it's pretty good if like you get a job. Mashallah, mashallah. Yeah. yeah. Like then you're just going to rise to, okay, got a job. Oh, this is good. I got a job. But if someone's like, okay, we're, we're really, you know, expecting you to, um, you know, get your PhD and be top of your class, then you're going to see someone rise to be top of their class, get their PhD. And then same thing, but at, collectively as a community, our standards are, are, that's the height of our standards. PhD, we don't hold people to like, I expect you to, you know, uh, get a Nobel prize. I expect you to be head of state. I expect you to, that's not something that's common within the Muslim community. So as coaches, we're elevating you to like, well, what are your dreams and what's a higher level of that? And then just seeing you, just seeing you as that. Yeah, of course you could do that. Definitely. And for a lot of people, you know, when I'm in one-on-one coaching with them and they'll tell me something and I'm like, oh yeah, you can do that. And probably, you know, 20% more, um, or whatever it is somewhat, you know, I was just coaching someone They're They're like, I want to get a promotion, this and that I'm like, okay. And what about two, you know, two or three levels up? They're like, oh, well that title is this and that. I'm like, oh yeah, I totally, you could do that title. And they were like, what? And like you, if you haven't thought of it for yourself, like it can, it's just so off-putting that you're like, what? Like you could see me doing, I could not see myself doing that. But then after they absorb it and give it some thought and probably for anyone listening to this podcast, and if you work at a company and you're Muslim and you're an immigrant, (laughs) my guess is you could run the company. You could run the whole company. That is my, I would like be willing to bet for 90% of the people that that's true, that you could do it. But for most people, oh no, I didn't, I didn't go to the MBA school and I didn't do this. And oh yeah, I could never, I hope I should just get, you know, 5% raise and maybe one promotion. Like, nah, man, you could run the whole company. And if I'm holding you to that level and to that standard, you will see internally, you will shift because, okay, someone is seeing within me things that I am not seeing for myself. And then you will begin, well, what are they seeing? And you will begin to look for those things. Oh, they're seeing, you know, my dedication, my worth ethic, the way that I, you know, communicate with people and bring people together. And this, yeah, those are tremendous qualities because we tend to just overlook the goodness that's within us and are constantly focused on where we're lacking. And so a coach supports you in seeing the goodness within you, growing it and expanding it. Because when you just grow, right? Like if you already have a garden and like, okay, this one thing is flourishing. And if you've expanded it, make it grow even better, then your garden becomes more and more beautiful. You don't have to spend time like, oh my God, there's a couple of weeds in that corner. Look at those weeds in that corner. What do I need to do with those weeds? And it's just draining your energy. Just focus on where you can grow and you could have an award-winning garden. Um, so coaching is such a powerful tool. You know, we've had coaches, we believe that the prophet sallam, like his role was as a coach, that that's what he was doing in his small circles when people were coming to him and sharing their issues openly, right? I'm, I committed adultery. I did this and that. And he'd be like, okay, this is about temptation and people, the Sahaba, what made them the greatest nation was hearing directly from the spiritual master, how to address your spiritual ailment. And then seeing each person in turn, how he addressed the, okay, well, I have a little bit of that. I'm going to do the same thing that he recommended for him. I'm going to apply that one too. And in that way, the Prophet raised up the first Sahaba to be that great nation. And so we 
can do that for each other now because we each can see for another person you it's easier for you to see the goodness in another person right when your friend comes to you and is telling you you know some project that they want to start and they're so worried about it and you can look at them like you can do that project because you can just see like you you know you could write that book you could make that podcast you could start of course you could do that it's so obvious because you see all the beautiful qualities within them and so as a community we, we need to do more of that and coaching is a really defined focused clear place um to do it in a structured way yeah yeah that was that was beautifully put that, that answer i mean those questions i was gonna ask there's one or two but i'm just gonna wait for james's response but you kind of answered most of them <laughs> I mean, the only the only thing I wanted to tie in coaching is with your point about stigma is that most people think of therapy, think of coaching. That's a white people thing. Like, oh, just pray, just do your thing, suffer quietly. And, and that's the solution, right? Well, suffering this life, meaning more suffering this life means a higher state in the afterlife, right? That we have this fallacy again. But what I will say about coaching and, and regardless of, of who you get it from, right? Like LeBron James has a coach. Serena Williams has a coach. Why? The coach doesn't play better tennis than Serena Williams, doesn't know more basketball than LeBron James, but they are there because they are a third party observer and they can see areas where even somebody who is as near perfect as a Serena Williams or LeBron James, they can improve. But the one thing that I'll tell Muslims around the world is that our life is really just a never ending quest to be the best representative of Allah on earth. If you think that you're going to work, okay, I worked, I did this program. Now I could just relax. I hit this plateau. Now, now I'm at the top of the mountain. The surest thing that's going to happen is then you're going to go down because you could invest in your health, let's say an, an exercise program and you get a fitness instructor and you work with them diligently and you watch what you eat and you become super muscular. What happens if you stop doing the regimen for three months or six months or 12 months? Lose You'll right. go back the way you were, if not worse, right? And that's the same thing spiritually. Like, I don't know why we accept it physically. If I walked in today without a shirt and I'm all buff, you wouldn't think that Allah just blessed me, that it was a miracle that I have great genes. No, you will know that I ate well, slept well, worked out well, all those things. But when it comes to spiritual excellence, we think, oh, you were chosen by Allah. The Sahaba were special ones. The prophets were special ones. There was a decree from Allah. No, these people also earned their way into history. You don't walk into history you earn your way to it. And that's what they did. And so if you are listening to this and you're looking into self-development, the main thing that I'll say is that it never ends. Whether it works with myself, with Zahra, with our coaching program, that's irrelevant. What we want is just have Muslims rise to the challenge in that the main thing that we've, the complacency that we've gotten into as Muslims is that level of comfort. Like, oh, that's it. I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just going to have my safe job. I'm going to have my safe house. My children are going to go to the safe universities. And we're just going to, be in this little tame life to avoid all challenges. But we already know that challenges are a promise. There is no way that you're not going to get a challenge. So why not prepare yourself in a wholesome way so that you could not have a challenge-free life, but to face challenges with grace? No, I, I completely agree with both answers. Beautifully put, as I said, you've answered most of my questions. And just to give examples from my experience, where um, I agree with them, um, it's, it's, we set limits to, we usually what it is we'll set limits we'll automatically just say all right this is my capacity i can't go more even though what you've done is you've capped yourself at 25 percent 
and you've shut off the other 75%, whether that be those limits are imposed by yourself or by family or by your community, for an example, my community, it's improved, mashallah, in the last 15 years, 10, 15 years, where at one point, I think there only was only some, my community is heavily, I mean, I mean, live in England, but like the, the ethnic community here, the majority is Arab, a few Pakistanis, uh, Indians, Africans. Um, but predominantly, it's an Arab community and predominantly Yemen, Yemen, Yemen community. Um, and where there was, from our recall, so we have a we have a cultural community center, and my my dad works there, volunteers uh, as one of the vice chairmen. And I remember him telling me that they did a survey in like two thousand and eight. And not one Arab Yemeni, or just not one from the ethnic community, was in a professional job. Like they, none of like not one had a, like a professional qualification. Was in a, a professional setting job. Um, they all doing you know, working, do, doing fine, but like not one I was like, okay, why is that? Is no one going to university? What's going on? Um, and like, I mean, they didn't dive into the psychological aspects. They're just looking statistically at this. And now they, they, you know, it's a lot better. Like my cohort and probably the few the people who are a few years older than me, we were like some of the first to, from our families to go on to university. And now it's just had that cascade effect. Okay, they're seeing so and so's son, or you can do that too. So and so's daughter, you can do that too. Um, so just breaking that limit. So once a few of us broke that barrier. That's it. We opened the door and everyone else is like, I can do that now. And also the part where you said um, where we tend to see more greatness in that per- in your in your friend or in whoever that person is, than that person sees themselves. Um, yeah, that's I'd, <laughs> I was also I'd confirm with that one. I completely agree. Where again, that's probably just the same limiters set or maybe it's just because of fear. Um, maybe they know they can get there. It's just they're afraid that they might do a bad job when they get there. But you won't know until you try. You could be the best there ever is <laughs> at it. Um, so yeah, it was really beautifully point. I completely agree on, on, on those and it's just on, on those aspects. And it's just we have to break through those limits and barriers. And sometimes it's just hearing someone else that they've done it who is in a similar position as you. Maybe that's the click that you need. Or maybe it's just like you said, it's, it, you know, someone empowering you, whether it be a friend, Islamic life coach, family members, to just, you know your connection with your faith if you haven't done any of that like you just do the night prayers and you just took them online then you have a sudden realization through your prayers and meditation that you know what i know i'm capable of this i, I have everything i need allah's given me everything i need i'm gonna go for it um so yeah that's yeah from my experiences and it coincides with and coincides with exactly what you've said and you've gone into greater detail on that and that was really beautifully put on that aspect um and then i so the last the, the one I want to mention now is your devotionals, which I've um, read some of them. I have to say, I'm assuming both of you read it. Personally, I think they're beautiful. Like the way they're articulated, honestly, one or two, I actually choked up. I'm not afraid to say that. Like the way it was written, I thought it was beautiful. Like he generally hit my chord. There was one about forgiveness. Um, uh, there was one, if I recall, I'm trying to remember. One about forgiveness, one about time. Um one was called I believe it was called come to me um one of the pages and i it, for me it hit my card the way it was written beautifully articulated also with the hadiths um references um to just to coincide with that uh, or the segments or specific verses from the quran um again i thought it was just absolutely 
beautifully written. So I just wanted to ask um, the, the process of producing this, basically. Um, how did that came to be? Sure. So I write the devotionals and um, um, they came about from me reading Christian devotionals. So it's something that is um, more common in the Christian community to have these short reminders um, um, about what God says uh, in this format. And someone had been posting them on social media. And I, I, I kept read every time they post, I would read theirs. I'm like, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Like, this is what God says. Um, and he's in Christian vernacular, you know, talking about, you know, like you will be saved and, and that type of language, but the message, I was like, yes, Allah says this. And, um, essentially it was just like, why isn't there something like that? You know, for, for us, for Muslims, from the, just a clear, direct, simple language of what Allah is telling us. Um, because, you know, many of the translations of the Quran, I know more and more people are trying to translate it in more clearer language or plain speak. Um, but many of the translations are just so convoluted, wilt thou, you know, this and that, and it's hard to follow and it's hard to connect to. And essentially, I prayed on it and I meditated on it. And I was like, okay, you know, I want to produce then something like this because by that point I had been reading these Christian devotionals one every day for like four months and was already feeling my life differently from really hearing Allah in like this loving way, supportive way. He's got my back. You can do this, approach this day and know that I'm with you. And I'm like, okay, Allah has got me like, this is great. Um, and so I began um, writing them during Ramadan and posting them one um, one every Ramadan, and they have been met with you know beautiful um, um, welcomes beautifully because it's just that short reminder that many of us need right reminders benefit the believer that we just really literally constantly need to be reminded because the 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 stress of the day, the overwhelm of the world will just sweep us up into anxiety and fear and rush and, uh, and all sorts of things to worry about. And if you can have some reminder that's easy to grab onto that um, can support you to just click your head back straight to be like, okay, you know, um, this is a temporary life. I am a divine being. God's on my side. It can help you make that shift in that moment to, you know, tackle whatever it is, your boss coming at you or something happening with your sibling or, you know, getting a flat tire or whatever is going on. Um, and so that's kind of how they came to be. Um, right now, we're really excited. I don't know if we should share that we're working um, on an app of these Islamic devotionals so that you can get one a day delivered right onto your phone. So you don't have to go onto any social media and get all of the distractions that come from going on social media. It can be this beautiful space, this app where you can get the devotional, get this wonderful reminder. It'll have space for you to write your notes, tag them, keep the ones that you know are most striking to you um, in a favorites folder. And so inshallah, that will be launching soon. So um, we will make sure to have that link under this podcast also as soon as it is available. 
Uh, that was in you read my mind because I was I, I was gonna ask later on. I was like, you guys should create an app <laughs> uh, to make to, to expand your reach. Uh, I was thinking of it earlier when you were going through the, the programming course. Um, but like you by your head. Um, but yeah, I yeah, my just like my feed like I can only say just positive comments. I absolutely the devotions that I've read, I thought they were absolutely beautiful. Like they opened bits in me, and I was like, okay, this is I needed to hear this. Like it would put like it's like I couldn't I don't believe Quindus and that everything's meant to happen when it was meant to happen like like sometimes you when you ever like you hear stories and it's even happened to myself where you're thinking about something then you just open randomly a page to like Quran or like this devotional book I'm like what are the chances that's what I <laughs> needed to read right now right here it fit like it happens when I Friday prayers I go to football I'm like I wonder what he's talking about today because I'm hoping this and I'm sitting there I was like is this meant for me. <laughs> it's like I've attended a, th- a therapy session that was just meant for the guy sitting at the back. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but I but knowing full well that there's other people who probably experience exactly what I am. It's just we don't share it. And what you guys are providing is that. And then like how you said, oh my God, I'm experiencing the same thing. Let's work together, let's figure this out. So but yeah, I f- I just thought it was absolutely beautiful, your devotionals. And um I'd be interested in the app, yeah. <laughs> so That's yeah, I'll we'll I'd be you know. <laughs> so um in terms of that this whole experience um the experience so far um from you know just your whole spiritual experience yourselves and then going into um islamic life coaching and producing content that you produce what's it been like as as muslim entrepreneurs um as muslim entrepreneurs i think it's it's just really been an expression of like letting more and more of ourselves out um you know all of the things that we're sharing now that anything that we've shared publicly we've probably talked about it for five years (laughs) before it's you know come out it would start it out oh my god did you notice this and like nighttime conversations and then oh my god this article sharing things until finally like you know what we should say something about this and then it's come out so it's like allowing ourselves to share what has supported us what we're thinking what we have found um, useful or helpful or, or wrong or confusing or like, you know, the, the insights that we've gained, like, oh, we're all focused so much on the Islamic rules. And, you know, the lesson of like, you know, don't get angry, for example, where's the, where's the practical explanation for how do we not get angry? And then, oh my gosh, we found that. Let's share how how it actually works, how you can do that. And unfortunately, right, it's not a soundbite. It's a whole program. It's a whole something. It's it's deeper, which is why it's been hard to share. But like, we don't we no longer need to um, uh, be reducing Islam to just the easy bite-sized things that we can teach our kids in Sunday school and that we can just quickly hear on one Friday khutbah, like we have the opportunity and everyone is searching for the opportunity to go deeper. And that's one thing I wanted to, unless you wanted to um, say anything else about Muslim entrepreneurship. I would just echo that. I think, I think true, true entrepreneurship is the gradual and beautiful expression of yourself ultimately. I think in America, at least, and probably in the UK, we met a few tech startups when we were in London. And um, there was this idea of glorified hustle is what a startup is. You work 20 hours a day and you raise hundreds of millions of pounds, hundreds of millions of dollars. 
um, and you, you hire rapidly and you fire rapidly and you, you grow exponentially and then you IPO, you become a public company on, traded on the stock market and you sell your soul in the process and all these things. And that is not entrepreneurship. That's just another job. But instead of your job being McDonald's or Walmart or you know Costa Coffee, right? It's actually the shareholders, the investors are your boss. And in fact, you cannot fire your investors. Once you take on investors, that's it. They, they're tied to your hip for life. In my argument, what entrepreneurship truly means is freedom. Freedom to be you, freedom to express yourself with no fear of being your full self as a Muslim person. Freedom to succeed on your own terms and at your own pace. Um, and so that's, uh, we've started companies before and they weren't like this. We started a company that was grow at, not to say grow at all costs. We, we had our own resistance to that culture, the Silicon Valley culture in the US. And, but we were in that way of growing very big, having a sustainable business, all that stuff. But, and we were not sharing all of ourselves. We were trying to frame ourselves into this entrepreneurship mold. But whereas now it feels just tangibly different and the success is more wholesome because of us utilizing entrepreneurship just as a vehicle for self-expression as Muslims, uh, which we didn't do in the past in our previous companies together. Yeah, I never, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I mean, besides I did business in high school, I haven't really, so I'm not, so I'm, you're teaching me stuff at this point. <laughs> um, but no, it's really interested the way you put it, how you've approached it with more not, not of, you've approached it with not with less, not with the hustle and let's get rich quick scheme. You've approached it with first, actually, I want to make sure I want to create a beautiful product and that it can help people. And then that will like, like best quality items will produce, will, will, will tra- attract customers. Um, you know, and you will produce, you know, then you produce like you create, and if you can create a beautiful work environment, you know, they, all of these aspects is something you have that method. I'm like, I remember there's a New Yorker called Gary Vaynerchuk. You probably know him um, um, where he always goes, he doesn't want to operate like how Steve Jobs did it. Um, he wants to operate where everyone is the, basically the workplace is a community. The, they make sure, you know, everyone gets along great. What they're producing is quality products. They community like the, the sincere communication and like growth with the staff, but also with the consumer. Um, and then that will just produce something beautiful and of quality and that it will just flourish. And, and that's what, how I've perceived. And, um, and that, well, I can tell that's what you guys are producing at this moment. And that will tail into my next question is what's your future ambitions? So where do you want to take this? What's your next level? Um, I mean, our future ambitions is just to to, you know, James says to reach a million people, um, to hopefully reach many more than that. Um, I'm stealing all your lines. James also says, right, to produce like, you know, the next Serena Williams, Muslim Serena Williams, Muslim Steve Jobs, Muslim Nobel Prize winners, Muslim that really, again, because of our faith, because of our spirituality, we are excelling, not just you know, at home and family and community, but at the top of every field of every industry and that we are allowing ourselves to A, have those ambitions and then B, build the systems that will get us to the top of those ambitions because that is what we were called here to do. We were sent 
onto this earth. We were brought into this world. We came out of, you know, the divine, um, the, a divine expression with a gift, with something to contribute to this world. And it's not just for some people to contribute, only the prophets contributed. No, each of us have something to contribute that will improve our own life and the lives of those who we come in contact with. And it is our responsibility as representatives of God on earth to do that. Because how, if you're someone's representative, you've got to do what they sent you to do. God sent you here with someone, you're really talented at bringing people together. You're really talented at cooking. You're really talented, you know, at, um, at, at nurturing children. You're, you're supposed to do that thing to your best of your ability, because that is what will build a beautiful world. If we all, Allah loves us each and gave us a beautiful gift lovingly. And if we express that gift lovingly out into the world, the world will be beautiful. It's when we deny our gift and get jealous of other people's gifts, then that's when we're going to see the chaos reign. And when we can allow that, it will also allow us to realize that when we're reaching these high statuses, oh, you know, I have a billion dollar company or I'm a Nobel prize winner, or I'm head of state. When you reach that high status, you will keep yourself in the mentality that I'm God's representative doing this. And it allow you to do that work from a place of empathy and compassion and service to whoever you're serving. And if we can imagine how differently would the world look if our politicians, if our business leaders all operated from a place of service, how would the response to pandemic be response to hunger? water shortages, all of those things. If it were people who actually were like, okay, this is my gift. I'm, uh, you know, I have this new design for a well system that can irrigate all of blah, blah. the world would be, we would be fed. We would be clothed. We would be, you know, at peace, all of those things. And it is our jobs as Muslims um, to do that. And so our, what's next for us is supporting a, this conversation to keep having this conversation that that is possible. It is what we were called here to do. And more and more people are waking up to that Muslim and non-Muslim alike, that we are living in community. If we try to stay individual, we will pursue and endure needless suffering as clearly the pandemic has shown. The, the only thing that I would, uh, uh, the caveat that I would share is that, um, when we say we want the next Steve Jobs, we want the next, um, you know, J.K. Rowling, et cetera, we don't mean it just in materialistic things. That is not the point. Yeah, money is not the point. Fame is not the point. Uh, consumerism is not the point. The point is when you express your true self, when you become more of what and who you are as God created you, when you return to your fitrah, when you return to your natural predisposition as a representative of Allah on earth, then the world has no choice but to submit. Yes, we will have the um, modest artists and you know the janitors, but they're doing it from the heart, no problem. But also the world will have no choice, but some people are going to be very abundant because now you are in flow with nature. A tree doesn't grow tall because it's, it's ambitious. It grows because it follows its true nature. The sun, it absorbs the light, it absorbs the nutrients, and it grows to the sky. That's what it does, because that's what God created to do. 
And it will be the same for us humans. Most of us humans go against human nature. We go against our fitrah. We go against what we were created to do. And that's the source of misery. So when we say we want to create the next X, Y, Z, that's just an example, just to tie it to something. But it's really about allowing every single Muslim to true self-expression by undoing the decades of social, cultural, and religious conditioning. That's a beautiful answer um, that you both have given. You know, think that you, yeah, as your future ambition is to help raise everyone else to the level that they are meant to get to. Um, that couldn't. I mean, to me, that couldn't be a better ambition, a better future. Um, yeah, yeah. And I hope. I hope. I mean, I think you'll. I think you'll break a, a million easy. Personally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you definitely will. Um, yeah. Um, so do you have then any tips to maybe individuals who are looking to go down the path you two have gone down to become Islamic life coach, life coaches? Well, that relates to what James just said. Is it truly a calling that you feel is your gift to share? Or is it, oh, well, maybe this is something that finally will make me feel good. Or I don't know what I want to do in my life. I could just try coaching or I really want to you know, do something else, but I'm so scared. Coaching seems safer. So the first thing is like, do you actually really want to do it? And if you really feel that this is what you um, are talented in, are skilled in and have a desire to do and is your gift to contribute, then pray on that. And Allah will make the path for you. Allah will make your way and it'll be your unique way that you get there. Um, And if it's not to honor that and have the courage to go towards whatever it is that you are being called to do, no matter how, oh, it seems risky or what will people say, or it's not what I trained in or this and that, that you can go in that direction. If it's to be a poet, to be a woodworker, to start, go live on a farm, you know, and start raising animals. It's okay, you can do it. And we need everyone doing all the different things that they were called to do. So that's number one. And then of course, if you want to do it, then reach out to other coaches. You know, you can reach out to us um, and figure out uh, how it is that you want to um, offer your service and then begin offering it. You know, you can start out offering it to your family and friends, to your network, um, to coworkers, to whoever, uh, to, to really get a sense of if you're interested and if you like it. And kind of then related to this is the tips for everyone else for if you're interested in getting deeper into your own spiritual work, well, where should you go? Do I have to hire a coach? Can I do something else? And I just want to speak to that since we have over a decade of experience on our own personal spiritual journey and now um, as coaches that I just want to... um, First, say that if you want to do this work on your own, know that you're meant to do it in community. But if you want to start out on your own, start with books, start with books and podcasts. And I would recommend that you listen to and read a wide variety. Start with at least eight different books by different authors related to whatever, whatever you're feeling stuck on in the moment, or that you feel you need to work on or expand, whether that's in your relationship, or if that's with, with finances, or if that's with family members, or you're healing from an injury or an illness, find at least eight books, 
and read them all because they're going to approach it from different perspectives. You're going to, things are going to hit you more in, in other ways to begin to open your mind to what is available around that topic. Then if after you've done that and you're kind of diving deeper and you're like, okay, you know, this, this is giving me clues and I need more support. Now you can begin to look for people to support you. And you can start by just looking for like groups um, and communities. But what you want to be really careful if you are joining like any sort of like um, Facebook group that's dealing with this issue is that it's really a positive solution oriented tone. If it's a place where people are just complaining about the condition that they're in, like for example, singles, right? They're single and you're trying to get married. I'm going to join this group of other you know, Muslim singles that, but it's all just sharing horror stories of the apps and this and that, then that's not solution oriented and it's not positive. It's just going to make you feel worse about your situation. So you want to avoid that. You really want to look for groups and people who are focused on the spiritual personal development to master whatever this area is. Then if you're looking for like more individualized support, find a coach or a person or a mentor who has been through what you're going through. Find someone who you know, was uh, feeling insecure when they were single and then got married or find someone who did switch careers or find someone who did start their own company, whatever it is, right? Find someone who did heal themselves from some condition. Find the person who's been through what you've been through. Even better, find the person who's, who did it many years ago, a long time ago, because if they just recently you know, healed a condition or just recently got married, they still m- may be in that window where they haven't solidified all of their learnings and lessons. Um, and you don't want that. You want someone who's done it for, a, you know, 10 years ago, I healed this myself from cancer. 10 years ago, I got married 10 years ago, right? You want someone who's done it f- uh, a while back. Then finally, to really, again, if you want to, to, if you're looking for support and you really want to be sure you're finding someone who's really going to support you in a way that's going to make it helpful to you, um, look for someone who's helped others, right? And it doesn't have to be as a, in a professional way, just like, yeah, you know, I healed myself from cancer and then I was part of a cancer group and um, two other people, I became like their mentors and I, I supported them too through their healing. Okay. That's your person. You want to find someone who really has done the work themselves, did it a long time ago and supported others through it, regardless of what their title and what their, their um, current you know, occupation is. But in that way, you will know that this is gonna be a good mentor, a good coach, a good person for me to uh, support me in getting through this. And the main thing here that may be a hangup is people thinking, oh, do I really need help? You do. <laughs> we all do help, right? <laughs> we all need help. And I would suggest to you, right, if you could solve this yourself, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have already solved it? Haven't you tried all the things? Haven't you read all the books? Haven't you read all the articles? Haven't you asked all your friends? If you could already have solved this, wouldn't you? You would have. So it's not you know, you're needing something outside of you. And that really, there is no shame in that. 
right? Again, in our individualistic society, it makes it seem like people are, I'm a self-made millionaire. I'm a self-made this. No one is self-made. Everyone needs everyone else. And there is no harm, no shame in asking for help. In fact, it is what you need to do because it is only in your, in a, a way another sees you and can show you your blind spots that you'll be able to grow and do the same for others, right? You're going to end up paying it forward in some way. So I wanted to offer that to people because we get a lot of people like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing all the things, but if you're just doing all the things haphazardly, just watching YouTube videos on this topic randomly, or just in forums chatting about your issues, you're not actually making progress. You're just talking a lot. You're, you know, you're just doing a lot of activity, but it's not leading you anywhere. And I want, we want, and you want to progress. You want to enhance your life, get over the issue, get to the next thing. I mean, yeah, that was great. The only thing that I would say about a coach is that one thing that you should also look in a coach is that they have a variety of experiences in the sense that, you know, you might've started one company and like you look at, but like, it was just one, like, did they do it in different contexts? Did they do it in different industries? Did they have different careers? That's very important to ensure that you're getting somebody who has a diverse point of view that they could accommodate and understand and see yours as well. Because a lot of times you have people who are very narrow and then, you know, I call those cult leaders. They're not really a coach. Like if you just like, I'm trying to indoctrinate you into my point of view, that's not coaching. Right. And so that's the, that's the only thing that I'll add, but I'll echo the stigma around needing help in the sense that even if you didn't need help, wouldn't it be nice to get help? Like, I don't need you to bring me that glass of water. Better be nice if you brought me that glass of water. I could get up and get it myself. But if you got it for me, that will make my life easier. And wouldn't you want just a little bit of support like that? So even, even in the worst case scenario that truly you didn't need help, even if you got help and you didn't need it, it still makes your life easier. But most people, of course, they are in denial of needing help. Part of it because of these uh, negatives or stereotypes around it uh, that for sure it does, it cannot hurt to get help. Yeah. And you don't need to suffer. Like part of the reason sometimes people don't want to go get help is that well, I'm meant to suffer. This is my trial. This is my test. I'm being patient. Oh, oh I have to suffer with this burden. Um, the prophets all looked for a way out of their suffering, all looked for a solution. They didn't just sit here. Okay. Allah is just letting me suffer. So I'm just going to no. how can I get out of this situation? I am being, you know, tortured in Mecca. We need another place to go. I'm traveling to every other city nearby, sending envoys. Sending, we need to get out of this suffering. You do not, are not just meant to endure passively. That is not what it means by patient. What it means by patience is that while I'm sending these envoys, I'm holding firm that Allah is going to give me a way out and I'm having a positive view of Allah, but it doesn't just mean I just sit when Allah wills, we will finally be free from Mecca. Inshallah, Allah will will it one day we will be free. No, you are actively looking for how can I get out of this suffering? Emotional pain, you can think of it as the same thing as physical pain. When you put your hand over a fire and the heat starts to burn your hand and it hurts, what is it telling you? Move your hand. That's the wrong position for your hand to be in. If you stay in that position, your hand will get burned. It is dangerous. The pain is to alert you move your hand. So you move your hand. Emotional, spiritual pain that you're feeling is letting you know, 
you are in the wrong position. You are thinking the wrong things. You are believing the wrong things. You are in the wrong place. Move your mental state, move your beliefs, shift yourself to get out of this pain. It is not for you to just sit there being depressed and you know despondent and no, it is for you. It is an alert system. Move, you're in the wrong position and figure out. And if you can't figure it out on your own, find someone to help you. You should get help. You do not need to sit and suffer. We do not tell that to any medical condition. Oh, yeah, don't do the treatment. You're just meant to suffer. No, you get the treatment. And it is the same way emotionally, spiritually, get the treatment that will help you and find the person that can help you or the people or the community or the resource. You do not need to sit there suffering. Yeah, that was excellently put. Um, some of it you know, hit home to me for, for the past. Um, and I'm assuming whoever you know, listeners would find what, well, everything that we've discussed, we've gone into detail, we've gone quite deeply into it. We find that they will share something with what was said along the, this uh, episode, and and hopefully they will reach out to you. Which um, you can give you, we'll give your contact details um towards the end um. So now, because we've gone through so much and we've gone through quite a lot, it's quite deep as well. Um, and especially that last part, it was really extremely put about how to become a life coach, but then also what to look for a life coach. Um, whether that be with you two or if, if they decide to go somewhere else. Um, so you know, I'm really thankful for the information that you've provided. But um, just to lighten up the tone, I guess, <laughs> from the deep conversation, we'll do, we'll do some, to end on some fun, lighter questions. So we did we did briefly mention sports at the beginning. So is it just, so sports-wise, I'm assuming then, okay, the Lakers, are you guys into or any other sports? Are you two into American football? Soccer. I'm saying I see that you're wearing a PSG. I mean, you call it soccer, we call it football. I see you're wearing a PSG uh, jacket. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like soccer. Uh, I don't watch American football uh, more on principle than anything else. But um, the PSG jacket, I, I'm vain. I just like the colors more <laughs> than anything else. But we did get to go see a Chelsea match when we were in London, okay. uh, <clears throat> and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, mostly this for me is mostly basketball. You do like the Olympics. You've been to the Olympics in person, so. Yeah, I did go. I went to the Olympics back in a long time ago. (laughs) In 2000. um, I played soccer in high school, so I love soccer, but I don't really watch it that often. Okay. Um, So do you have a team that 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 when you were younger, did you have a team that you followed or? No, when I was younger, I just played. I just played playing soccer. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, yeah. now even though I like the Lakers, I actually have season tickets to the Clippers, the other Los Angeles team. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I'd hide I that. think it's the other way around. Yeah, I think, I think Clipper Lakers fans don't care that much about Clippers. They're like, you know, the, you know, maybe it's like Manchester United, Manchester City kind of thing. Like they're not that big yet. I mean, to be honest, um, yeah, the rivalry between them two isn't, I'm a Liverpool fan, I would say the rivalry yeah. is between Liverpool and Manchester United, Manchester uh-huh. United and City. It's there, but not as big as that one. Exactly. So I think it's the same thing. Like, in fact, one time um, our son loves the Lakers and we went, unrelated, we went to a Clippers game uh, we got invited to and our son was wearing a Lakers t-shirt go into the game and then somebody in the stands went and got him a clippers t-shirt to put on top wow. um, but it's not it's more light-hearted i think uh oh, okay. clippers fans are not die-hard fans i would say probably yeah now here everyone's a football fanatic uh yes, yes. if it's a derby uh you, 
I mean, fans will get along, but don't aggravate each other. Uh-huh. <laughs> Especially in the derby games, like this Liverpool, Manchester, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, right. Everton, Real Madrid, Barcelona. Like, uh-huh. it's minute, but in some cases, some, there, something might happen. But we do a good job. Everyone's quite civil. And then also, like, the crowd control, I guess, from the staff and everything, they do a really good job. Okay, that's interesting. I'm a Chicago boss. I was, I was really impressed with the... F- I didn't understand it because I looked at my ticket and it said something, family, lower area, whatever. But then later it hit me. I was like, how civil these people are at the stadium. Like it was real, like, you know, they were pretty, it was against Everton and we were not too far from the Everton corner and they were very, very rowdy and, and, you know, vulgar and all that stuff. But where we were sitting, people were like really well-mannered. And I was like, oh, this must be like family seating where they expect like children and families. You're not supposed to be a hooligan, I guess, yeah. uh, there. So I was, I was really impressed by that. By the fan control, I guess. Yeah, the it was really good fan control. And yes, the family seating was nice. And the management of the Everton visitors was very nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they usually double security. down. Yeah, that, that's what happens in the, in, we call it the away end. Um, yeah. They usually double down on security, no matter yeah. who comes over. Especially <laughs> if it's a team that it'll be a tougher match. So uh-huh. you're going to expect like uh, a strong interaction between the two fans. They yeah. will put more security and staff. Um, if it was, if you went to Ch- Chelsea, Tottenham, or Chelsea, Arsenal, wow. it'd probably been even more. <laughs> wow! <laughs> uh, <laughs> in some in some cases, what they do, and I know it's for Liverpool, Manchester United, and for some of the, they will they let the home fans leave and they keep the away fans for an extra thirty minutes, maybe longer, depending on the situation. Wow! Yeah, um, so that does happen, um, and but that just obviously that just then stops anything bad happening during or after uh yeah. the match so it makes stops them from mixing in the crowd with each other um because then one will start it rubbing in the win or the loss in the other in the other's face and then short tempers because you know you can buy alcohol or drink some will not be tipsy and be like i'm not having this and i'll start a fight <laughs> um so yeah you gotta be careful but no that's interesting um yeah, I don't like Chelsea personally. <laughs> um, being a Liverpool fan, I mean, I don't, I, I do like other teams in the Premier League, but yeah, Chelsea. I prefer Arsenal. If I had to pick between, if I had to pick between uh-huh. some of the London teams, I'd probably pick Arsenal or West Ham United. Um, yeah. I'd go with we were. It was timing for us. It was the only team playing. Actually, all the games got postponed after that. So, Alhamdulillah, I'm glad that we got to make it to a Premier League match because all the other games except that Chelsea game got postponed before you know the Christmas break and whatever. Okay, that, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, surprisingly, because uh, I was thinking, usually, I mean, because I'm assuming you must have got the ticket the day before, two days before, Something usually like that. Yeah. If it was, I mean, I'm surprised. I mean, maybe I just thought Chelsea always sell out. But if that wasn't a different team, like, especially if it's Manchester United, Liverpool, I guarantee you, you would not get a ticket at all. Wow. Maybe on like yeah. Gumtree. And someone would be selling it for double or triple the price. I see, yeah. <laughs> or something like that, but you would not be able to get a ticket from the club for the sale nice. price. Right. Um, so I, I would, if you did that... And there I mean, were really good a... seats. We were like, what, like five, six rows up from the pitch. I mean, they were wow, amazing okay. seats. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, damn, yeah, that's good. I mean, I hope to, if I can watch NBA. I've gone to see baseball, so I'm a, I like the Yankees, but I'm a Red Sox fans um, because yeah. um, the owner owns Liverpool. Some like I, I just and I, one of my close mates from university is born and bred Boston I fan. So and I got to see him in in London. They came over for a game. Oh wow, that was that was amazing. Um, I haven't gone to an NBA game. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. I don't think they've nice. came over yet. And for the first time in ten years, we have a team that can maybe win something. <laughs> 
um, which is pretty good. Um, but but yeah, my... do, NBA teams do come to the UK, right? Like, oh, play, yeah. like some games, yeah. But just I, not I, the Bulls, I guess. The, I mean, not if they haven't, I just wasn't aware. Um, just yeah. because it might be just academic timing, I probably had an exam when they came over, right, something like that. Right. So I just couldn't. But I hopefully one day, uh, inshallah, yes. I get to inshallah, watch the Chicago Bulls. Um, also, I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan, so if they do come over, I definitely will go watch them. <laughs> and so the game I watched on the weekend, that was fantastic, but it was scary at the same time. <laughs> um, but my, my next question then with you guys, um, I should, just, just looking at the time. So my next question would be, having gone through all of that, um, this is a question I always get asked by these people when you let's say when you're meeting new people and like a university, it was always an icebreaker. They would always ask what animal would you identify with or spirit animal, I guess. I would say butterfly for its transformation. Nice. I'll say koala for sleeping. (laughs) 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 Okay. Have you ever took any of those uh, like uh, animal personality quizzes? Usually no. when they tend to assess. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. I, 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 I did, someone did send me one, one once and I, I believe I got wolf. I, th- I, I wanted, ideally I wanted penguin. I just, I don't know why. I just, I like, <laughs> I like their way of life where they're just like, they just go with the flow. <laughs> and I kind of resonate with that. So uh, the, if I had, when people ask me, I say penguin, but then if they get me to do a questionnaire, usually I, I for some reason I come out with a wolf or or like a horse. So yeah, but I identify more with the penguin. <laughs> uh, so my my final lighthearted question would be America's, I mean America compared to most countries is more diverse. Not to say that other countries aren't diverse, but America has a lot of diversity. So that comes with a lot of different types of food. What's your favorite food or meal? One each. Mm, that's a very hard question. Mm, my parents are from Kenya, as I mentioned, and so it has a he- heavy Indian flu- food influence. Um, so it's kind of the Indian food, like chapati with dal. I mean, I, I really like Kenyan food as well, but I think my favorite will be couscous, probably. Uh, couscous, okay. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I just went with our heritage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being being myself, being Yemeni, so um, I do like goat meat. That's a delicate. That's quite nice. Um, and there's a dish called asida. Um, that's I don't know how to make it just because it involves the yeast and getting it all right in these proportions. And no, me and mine will deflate, and it'll just it'll be like making bread, and it'll just look like it just it won't be bread by the end of it. <laughs> that's what I'll say. <laughs> um but okay that's interesting I, yeah i i didn't expect those two answers i mean i expected one of you maybe to go with but is, is, is couscous actually algeria is that an algerian is that specific to algeria it is i mean it's north african i think all north african countries make it but okay. i prefer algerian couscous i guess <laughs> i prefer <laughs> okay uh, fine my non-heritage one i love um grape leaves what about James? Non-heritage one. Non-heritage one. Um, I mean, I do love like Yemeni, like leg of lamb, slow roasted kind of thing. Like I lo- like there used to be a Yemeni restaurant in New York. I used to go there all the time. So I would say probably something Middle Eastern with like a leg of lamb. Okay. okay. Mine non-heritage. 
I, I have a thing for South, Southeast Asian food. Mm. So um, the Chinese, Philippines, Indonesian, Japanese, Korean food. I absolutely love it. The different types of mm. flavors they they have and the types of meats or fish they might use with rice, uh, egg fried rice or, ch- or chow mein noodles or whatever it may be. I absolutely love it. So, and alhamdulillah, like Birmingham has a lot. Um, London and even Glasgow, uh, Edinburgh and all these. I've, I've visited all the cities. They have a lot to offer for that. Um, but I'd, yeah, I'd say that. I can't narrow it down to a country, but I'd just say that area. I absolutely love the food um, and I would like to go visit. I do have family there as well, so oh, <laughs> I would nice. like to visit. Um, but yeah, um, I'd like to say thank you for actually, um, Tiny. I would like to say thank you for coming on. Um, I suppose especially because I'm just a starting podcast, so I'm quite small. surprised that usually I expect they'll be like, oh, how many views do you have? And it's not that many. And they'll be like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> but thank you <laughs> for coming on. Um, do you actually want to share the details of how people can find you? Instagram, website? whatever the social media platforms that you use. Sure. On Instagram, uh, you can find um, my coaching account is at practical Muslim. Uh, then Jane, the easiest way is just to go to my coaching account at practical Muslim. From there, you'll see that I'm only following two accounts and those are James's account and my personal account. Um, you can also email us um, Zahra at practicalmuslim.com and James at practicalmuslim.com. Um, James is also very active on LinkedIn if you search his full name, James Fagmus, um, which should be in the show notes. And hopefully we can also have the links to all of these things um, in the show notes. Um, again, I thank you for uh, having this conversation with me. It was really insightful. I, even though I, I'm not in your program, I felt like I've got some bits from it that have actually helped. I've, hit home with me and that I'm even processing right now thinking about them so thank you for the information and I generally I generally believe what you're offering is it's fantastic and that you're definitely breaking me in like, like I'm confident in that well inshallah I should say um that you're definitely breaking me in and the, the ambition of goals of yours is of basically just raising the success of the ummah um it's really beautiful and I will keep you in my present. So yeah, um, thank you uh, for everything. Um, so thank, thank you. No worries, no worries. Again, I'll leave it there and I hope you have a wonderful day. And to the listeners, I hope you enjoy. Um, you hope you enjoyed the topic and go and follow and subscribe to my content as well as James and Zahara's content as well. I'll put the links in the descriptions. And yeah, so I hope everyone has enjoyed this and I hope everyone has a wonderful evening. Or, or morning, depending on where you are, time zone. <laughs> so, yeah, thank That's you. Good. Thank Salam you. Alaikum. Alaikum. Bye. Bye. Additionally, if you're interested in recording a podcast, there are multiple sites for you to upload your recordings and they will share the RSS feed to other applications so that your recordings can be shared. You can use softwares such as Zoom or Skype to interview and have discussions with others, as well as using Audacity to record and edit the sound files that you've gained from these interviews and discussions. You can also use Pixabay for music. Uh, The music used in this podcast is by Kama Media from Pixabay. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.